0: Hello, Guardian columnist Jonathan Friedland here. I now have my own U.S. politics podcast, which is, helpfully, called Politics Weekly America. So if you want to hear my interviews with politicians like Hillary Clinton or expert analysis from Guardian journalists and the latest news from Washington, D.C. and beyond, you should subscribe. To do that, just type Politics Weekly America into Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be there every Friday.
1: This is The Guardian.
2: Rishi Sunak began his spring statement by talking about the war in Ukraine. Why? Because he wants us to think about the rising cost of living as part of a bigger international crisis. But Mr. Speaker, the war's most significant impact domestically is on the cost of living. The Chancellor made one big announcement. The basic rate of income tax will be cut from 20 to 19 pence in the pound. But that's not coming into effect until 2024. What really stood out for me is that there was strikingly little help or action for people who were really struggling. Something that really, really meets the crisis people are facing and offers us at least a glimmer of hope that was sadly lacking. I'm John Harris, and you're listening to Politics Weekly UK for The Guardian. Joining me today are Miata Farmbuller, Chief Executive of the New Economics Foundation, and David Gork, the former MP, Chief Secretary to the Treasury, and briefly, the Secretary of State for Work and Pensions. Hello to you both.
1: Hi. Hello. Thanks for having us on.
2: Now, we're recording this episode shortly after Rishi Sunak's spring statement. We'll talk more about this performance and the substance of that later. I just wanted to ask you briefly about what preceded this, which is a sort of minor Instagram frenzy. The government seems very keen on putting up slightly sort of corny, cringeworthy images of ministers, and there were a couple went up of him reading about himself in the Mail on Sunday, I think, and then mysteriously sitting there in front of 18 sheets of paper all lined up on a table.
1: It's so mortifying. It's really (laughs) cringeworthy.
2: Really (laughs) mortifying? Is it that bad?
1: (laughs) Bear it. I just can't bear it. It uh, is—it's that awful thing of trying to look authentic but being like the least authentic thing in the world. I can't. I can't can't imagine the sort of thing you'd have done, David. Well, well, (laughs)
3: well, certainly not you or anyone. (laughs) (laughs) Well, when I was in the Treasury, um, there was there was one budget where Philip Hammond was the Chancellor, and uh, there was a picture of him holding a cup of tea and looking at the red book. Uh, and that was released. And we all thought it was hilarious. So all the junior ministers in the Treasury then posed holding cups of tea and Red Book looking at it. And uh,
2: I think we... But this wasn't sort of personal Instagram branding on the scale that we're seeing now, Felt was Philip
3: Hammond, not big of personal Instagram branding. No, I can't Instagram imagine he's big on the ground. Not, it's, not his, it's not his scene, so no. I mean, the, the big thing that we always used to have were, for budgets was the was the photograph outside Downing Street. Did you have 18 we,
2: sheets of paper mysteriously lined up on a table?
3: No, we never did that. No, we just we, we did used to have to rehearse to go outside Downing Street. So you'd get a rehearsal, so we'd all line up and pose and and, and all the ministers would look there for for about 10 seconds and then we would walk off leaving the Chancellor on his own but the first time I did this in sort of 2010 we went out there's there's loads and loads of photographers there and uh, George Osborne held up the the, the 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 box we all stood there and I was at the end and it was my job to sort of count to 10 and say let's go which we did but I was standing next to Danny Alexander and he'd never seen so many cameras before in his Course, life as, yeah. as a, liberal, a democrat. liberal democrat yeah quite so um so anyway I ended I ended up wandering off on my own and Paul yeah so <laughs> I had to go back and collect Danny and the rest of them it was a shambles but there we go
2: no that 's endearing i 'd rather have a shambles than what we've this level of sort of Instagram nonsense now, laughter and absurdity aside um, today we 're going to look at the cost of living crisis, starting with Rishi sunak 's spring statement, what you had to say, and then we 'll move into a bigger conversation about big issues and and why so many people in Britain are so vulnerable to the cost of living crisis now before we get into the spring statement i 'm going to have a chat with someone i 've been in touch with on and off for years, Robin Burgess from the Hope Centre in Northampton, which helps people experiencing some of the most acute problems of disadvantage and poverty. The Hope Centre provides advice services, it does campaigning work, and crucially and most pressingly, it helps people with food. Robin, how does what you're faced with now compare to previous years? In other words... What's the pattern over time? I mean, you've been at the Hope Centre for a fair while. So just give me a sense about how levels of need have changed, maybe over 5, 10, 15 years.
4: So, you know, whenever you have a big crisis or a big recession, like we had, for example, in the early 80s, when I cut my teeth as a young social worker, you know, that was when it was very acute. And we are back there again. Uh, And we hit again another peak during COVID. uh, But there was an attempt at alleviating those problems then by government with the uplift to uh, universal credit. None of that is in place now, and we're at the same time facing the greatest cost of living crisis that we've seen in possibly those 40 years of my career. So we're now seeing a level of poverty created by rising fuel prices, rising food prices, and everything else that's going up, including, let's not forget, housing and transport costs, that there will be millions more people, literally millions more people thrown into destitution over the next couple of years.
2: The biggest cost of living crisis in the 40 years yeah. that you've done the kind of work you do. Yeah. How do, how do you feel watching that play out in front of you?
4: Well, it's terrifying. I mean, we saw it when COVID, COVID hit. The has under no illusions. All those people who lost their jobs, a huge upsurge in people accessing food aid, food banks, kind of things that we run. Um, and that was massive. It'll be worse again this time because you have the added impacts of all the fuel stuff.
2: What are people going to do, do you think?
4: It may sound sensationalist, it may sound crude, it may sound bullying. People will starve or freeze. Um, some will do both. Um, and that's the reality. There'll be people who will not have enough to eat and will go hungry. And they will be ill, both psychologically and physically as a result of that. You know, it's not just me saying that. People like Jack Monroe, brilliant campaigners, have been making those cases really strongly. People like Martin Lewis, uh, the, the, the comparison site guy, has been doing fantastic work saying the same thing. This is not just scaremongering. This is not shroud waving. This is the reality of the life, the lives of the people that we work with.
2: What did you make of what the chancellor announced today, seen from your perspective?
4: Well, I mean, if you look this morning, you will see hundreds of charities, mine included, posting their, their messages to the chancellor saying, please, please do something for the very poorest. And he didn't. He gave a piece of money to go into local authority coffers to alleviate one-off payments, 500 million. Now, that may sound like a lot of money. You boil that down to a local level and it's a few thousand. Uh, And there are thousands of people going to be in desperate poverty. It will not touch the sides, as as people have been saying since the announcement, of all the need that's out there. He could have raised uh, universal credit levels in line with inflation. He chose not to do so. There is no systemic help for the very poorest in any of these statements. There is a one-off grant scheme that will be totally inadequate to address the need that there is. This is a totally wasted opportunity. And the only money that's been put in is really for those who pay tax, who will see some sort of minor reductions in a couple of years. But the the poorest and the next poorest will get nothing.
2: Four or five years ago, Jacob Rees-Mogg, as we both know, is in the cabinet, was talking about food banks and, and provision for people Experience in food poverty. And he said, to have charitable support given by people voluntarily to support their citizens, I think is rather uplifting and shows what a good, compassionate country we are. And he said, the real reason for the rise in numbers of people using food banks or needing food banks is that people know they are there and Labour deliberately didn't tell them. That's the sort of message we hear from time to time from, from people in charge. How did you feel or do you feel about that?
4: It is, it is ridiculous to assume that the charitable sector. Charities like mine and all the others replicating what we do all, all up and down the country. It is ridiculous to assume that we can, however uplifting our work is, match that tide of need and hurt that people on the poorest incomes will be experiencing. There is nothing uplifting about receiving some charity from an organisation like us. It may be kind and it may, be, may help but it is not enough to mitigate against those cuts.
2: Thank you so much for talking to us, Robin. Really, really appreciated as ever, and all the best. Obviously, this is a really, really difficult time for you, but more importantly, for the people that you help. Thanks very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you. I mean, I talk to Robin every sort of two, three months, really, to get a sense of what's going on. And I think that the telling thing is that I'm not talking to someone in the sort of place that might be understood as a byword for poverty. I mean, Northampton's sort of, you would think of as socially and economically middling, you know. And yet there he is talking about people starving and freezing. And instinctively, you know, there were certain points in that conversation where I have my head in my hands. And that's sort of at once removed. He's sort of faced with that every day. I mean, it's amazing that there are people like him around to do what they do. Part of me wonders how, how they sort of carry on, really. But he really was it was was talking about looking ahead two, three, four months, two or three years as this cost-of-living crisis mounts and feeling scared, really, by what he's faced with. I just wonder what, what you felt hearing it, really.
1: I mean, look, it's desperate stuff. And I think the thing that is heartbreaking is that it's a story you're hearing over and over again across the country. And it's not the people who, by the way, have been, like, hammered and suffering for a really long time. It's the fact that it's creeping up the income scales. And it is desperate, you know, I'm actually fuming that in one of the richest countries in the world, we've got ourselves in a situation where you've got people who are having to make a choice between not eating, not feeding their kids and heating their homes. It's just not good enough. It is not good enough.
2: Hey, I mean, David, he said that, that it's not even, or it's gone beyond the point now that cho- people are choosing between eating and heating. They're suffering both. I have to say, as a, you know, as a
3: hard-bitten former Tory Treasury Minister, I felt that more should have been done for those people, in this spring statement, uh, and I think in terms of sort of prioritising, you know, we we, we we the whole country is about to face a difficult period of time, and you know, the average household is likely to lose something like a thousand pounds as a as a consequence of inflation. But I would have focused, I have to say, today on on those people at the bottom. Can I,
1: can I ask a question?
3: Because
1: I mean, on. you know. I'm a I'm a bleeding heart liberal so of course you know this would impact me and of course for me it was a no brainer that he had to help the people at the the sharp end and I, I, and I, you know, a lot of the time, yeah, you know, I can look at government decisions and I can rationalize it and I can say, well, it's not the decision I'd make, but I understand it. And I generally don't understand. And is it just that they don't really know what's going on in the country? Is it that they're just not seeing that scale of suffering? When people are saying, there is nothing else I can do, I've literally, I've every avenue to just try to get by, I have ex- exhausted. Is it that they're not seeing it? They don't believe that it's as desperate as it is? I, t- I don't understand.
3: Well, I, I, do, I do wonder whether, um, particularly if we see the energy cap go up again in October, which looks far more likely than not, as to whether the government is going to be forced to come back uh, with something more generous at that
2: bottom. But why not, why not but- now, when things are as stark... As as Robin told us, and Mia just reiterated, and you yourself have, have said yeah. that you're that you're sort of surprised by the absence of measures to help people who are really suffering. Why is there that absence? Do you
3: think? I, I think it's a fair question, and and you know if I attempt to explain it rather than justify it, I mean look, there there is always a viewpoint that you know the best way that you can help people is to help them into work and that you can encourage them to work more hours uh, and you know that that is a that is the sustainable route out of poverty and I you know I think there's a lot in that I, I don't shy away from that argument at all and you know there are always questions about cost and what you can afford and, and you know, can we uh, as an economy, there are lots, lots and lots of demands on public spending sure. and do you have to make some sort of tough choices But
2: there are blind spots here in the moment aren't
3: I, I, I think this is failing to appreciate quite what the circumstances are and I say that as someone who was in a government that took some very tough decisions on benefits and welfare. But I do think you, know, you look at what is happening to prices, which was not an issue when I was in government, and you, and you think you
2: know, more help needs to be done. Right, talking of of which, let's get into uh, the substance, or lack of it, in what the Chancellor had to say, and what he announced in terms of hard policy. One of Sunak's announcements was a 5p uh, cut in the rate of fuel duty.
4: For only the
0: second time in 20 years, fuel duty will be cut. (laughs) Not by one, not even by two, but by five pence
2: per (laughs) litre. It's the market trader school of rhetoric. Not one, not two, but five. So that was one measure he announced he announced some help with energy costs in a sort of roundabout way he's going to cut VAT on such energy saving devices as heat pumps and so on he has announced that the household support fund which is a measure that was brought in after the backlash against the end of the uplift to universal credit that was initially half a billion pounds a year administered by local councils that load of money ends this month March 2022 The next phase of that, will see the amount doubling to £1 but that's discretionary help that people have to specifically apply for to help poorer families. Um, He also said that the national insurance threshold was raised by £3,000 to £12,570, and in the most sort of headline-grabbing but not immediate bit of what he announced, he said he's going to cut the basic rate of income tax from 20% to 19%. But not until 2024. David, first of all, what did you make of those those measures? I think the curious one is the income tax cut uh, in
3: 2024, because he started off his speech quoting the OBR of the Office for Budget Responsibility, saying this is a period of high uncertainty and they haven't fully fa- factored in the Ukraine war and the, the, the numbers could substantially move in the wrong direction. So he says that, and then he makes a promise for a cut in income tax in two years' time. He's got three fiscal events between now and then which he could have used to announce this. And I just think it's sort of really strange in a period of uncertainty in the public finances that you're committing yourself to a tax cutter at this point. And I can only think that that's designed to appeal to Conservative <laughs> MPs and, and, and
2: the Tory press. But this is just this is the weekly bit of so-called red meat, that this somewhat this somewhat panicked and nervy government seems to feel duty-bound to throw the back benches, right? Yeah,
3: and, and that's, that's partly what worries me that it did sound a little bit panicked and so it did sound as if Rishi Sunak has heard all the accusations, of, yeah he's a high tax Chancellor. Um,
2: highest tax burden since 1945. Tax, all, of,
3: all of that sort of stuff and he's sort of worried and thought well like, I I better get rid of that reputation as quickly as possible whereas if he'd been thinking... You know what's my plan over the next two years? Well, I'll you know I'll announce this later, assuming that the numbers allow me to do so. So I think it undermines his fiscal credibility.
2: Okay, that's the sort of high politics. As regards the the effect on people's everyday lives, let's talk about that as a sort of context for the measures that were announced today. Yeah. So so how much help, if any, does this does this give some, people who need help? I'm
1: some, but not enough for those need it. And for me, that that income tax announcement just felt really tone deaf. It's like. Against the backdrop of what people are feeling for the next six months, a year, year and a half, why are we talking about a tax cut in, you know, two years time? It seems really odd. And then you look at the things that he's doing now. So you take that fuel duty. I was expecting a 15p cut, which would be something. but that, it's that- three, three
2: pounds, I've just read, off a full tank of petrol
1: well it's exactly so and the the worst part of it is for the lowest income households actually only about 7% of the benefits flow to them because they use less fuel versus the highest if you take the highest 20% of households that's about 33% of the benefits flow to them so like 1 pound 80 a month for the lowest households it just doesn't stack up and it's the national insurance threshold the thing that i'm struggling with is that actually why it cost six billion? Why didn't he use that six billion to operate social security, which wouldn't have meant you know a thousand pounds? Six billion. Year.
2: Correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, was the value of the uplift to universal credit twenty
1: uplift a thousand pounds a year? So three hundred pounds, which will be going to higher income households, versus a thousand pounds to people who are literally struggling. To feed their kids or heat their homes.
4: And these and are it choices. Is choices. Let's do the choices. Choices.
1: choices. It is about choices. And, you know, in some respects, he set the dividing line, you know, he set the dividing line in terms of the story he wanted to tell on tax, but also where his relative priority were. Um, and it's whether it's an, a strategy that the politics will pay off for him. I'm not sure.
2: Tough choices is a sort of political cliche. I wanted to talk about tough choices in the context of people's everyday lives. and one person in particular. On Tuesday, I spoke to someone uh, I've spoken to before about the cost of living. I spoke to her in January. She lives in rural North Wales and she writes diary entries under the pseudonym Lexi for a project called COVID Realities, which was initially about everyday life in the pandemic but the people who've organised it have extended it now because of the cost of living crisis. And the woman I'm talking about lives with her husband who used to work in construction until fairly recently. He's currently unemployed. She's disabled. They have four kids, four sons. They live two miles from the nearest bus stop and they rely on oil for their central heat in and hot water. Um, The last time they had the heating on, she told me, on Tuesday, it was in November. Um, Their oil tank at the moment is running low. And she's just been told that the price of 500 litres of oil has gone up from £235 to £480. It's more than doubled. The family's electricity bill is about to go up from £1,851.15 to £2,564.33 annually. She transferred to Universal Credit a while ago and there was a nine-week wait. And she's still paying back debts on her bills from that time. Now, it would be easy to think, she's living at the social edges in point of fact there are lots and lots of people living in comparably difficult impossible circumstances you know i don't think that's a, a, a taller sort of freakish set of occurrences and i didn't hear anything in in the in the spring statement for people like her i mean that's a point both of you made throughout the conversation up to now the obvious thing to do would have been to put up universal credit by more than 3.1 percent which is the current rate which gets us back to the conversation we started Fitfully a moment ago, why not do that david?
3: I think that's a really good question and I, I think you know when you 've got inflation moving as it was from you know three percent in September and now it's going to be eight percent in april yeah you know, that's a that 's a big jump, and that seems to me the obvious thing to have done to have to have brought that forward. One of the issues that I have no doubt that they worry about in the treasury is is about reversibility, in other words, if you do you know short term help to get through the surgeon in Like inflation. the Household Support Fund Yeah, and, and so hence you've got you know one off payments like the Household Support Fund is is exactly the type of thing that you could do because it's easy to withdraw it. And one of the issues with the universal credit uplift, you know, it was very popular and welcomed when it was introduced,
2: and then the government had a whole host of pain when it was withdrawn. And they it should never have been withdrawn. There was a sentence I read in The Economist magazine this week, in a piece about Rishi Sunak. It said, as for raising benefits, Conservatives dislike nothing more. I ask you this because you're a Conservative. That's true, isn't it? And I wonder why it's true. I think, I think,
3: I think that probably is true. Um, uh, but, I, uh, but I tell you why, and I think it's I think, yeah, something, a number of issues which I think are wrong here. There is the sort of mindset that increasing benefits automatically results in sort of increasing you know people being dependent and, and so on. And I think this is in part a failure to to properly embrace the reforms that involved in universal credit. Now, I'm a defender of of UC and I think you know a system whereby we are more generous with the money that we hand out but we also expect more from UC claimants and we ensure that you know that works whether you're out of work or in work and a of a lot, as you well know, a heck of a lot of UC claimants are in work. And it is not an out-of-work benefit. It is not there to sort of encourage dependency. It is designed to provide support to people who need it and to help them into work.
2: But even you as a Conservative would agree that notwithstanding everything that you've just said, there is an element of the sort of collective Conservative mind which, which teeters into cruelty sometimes in its refusal to countenance, the idea of putting benefits up, particularly in a crisis like this?
3: Well, as I say, I think they should put benefits up. The argument will be, you know, we can't just borrow away and support living standards forever uh, uh, and, and, you know, pay people to stay at home. But universal but, credit doesn't uh, pay people to stay at well, home. Right, um, right. From, yeah.
1: For me, that's the key point. So... A lot of people on UC are in work. And actually, for me, the more important thing that we need to hold on to is if you give people the basics, so they're not in destitution, so they can actually afford the basics for a decent quality of life. You set the foundations for them to spring up. You set the foundations for them to do better. And if we had any doubt in our mind, actually furlough that intervention that said we are going to provide a baseline for people. And what did we see? People were able to engage with the labor market again. We didn't see huge levels of unemployment. People were able to bounce back. If you give people the foundations, they can get ahead. If you cut them at their knees, they tip into crisis and then they go into spiral. So I still don't understand our mindset on benefits because actually for me, everything we've learned over the last 10 years should have shifted that mindset.
2: Right, at that point, let's pause. In a moment, we're going to talk about the sort of bigger social and economic picture, how we got here, and the kind of deep social issues that we probably didn't hear much about from Rishi Sunak.
0: Hello, Guardian columnist Jonathan Friedland here. I now have my own U.S. politics podcast, which is, helpfully, called Politics Weekly America. So if you want to hear my interviews with politicians like Hillary Clinton or expert analysis from Guardian journalists and the latest news from Washington, D.C. and beyond, you should subscribe. To do that, just type Politics Weekly America into Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be there every Friday. So Guardian columnist Jonathan Friedland here. I now have my own US politics podcast, which is helpfully called Politics Weekly America. So if you want to hear my interviews with politicians like Hillary Clinton or expert analysis from Guardian journalists and the latest news from Washington, DC and beyond, you should subscribe. To do that, just type Politics Weekly America into Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be there every Friday.
2: Welcome back. We're now going to talk about the big social and economic issues that leave so many people vulnerable to the current cost of living crisis and and whether or not that big picture can be changed in any way. Clearly, this is a country full of millions of people who are extremely vulnerable to any rises in prices and big economic shocks. Since the financial crash of 2008, we've largely seen stagnating wages, benefits falling way behind living costs, millions of people living below the poverty line, and what you've ended up with is the plain fact that when we hit any crisis, a lot of people can't cope. Let's talk about the welfare state first of all, I think, anyway, that the welfare system, the so-called welfare system, I prefer to call it social security, personally, doesn't work. It's meant to exist as a safety net, but we all know, I think it's fair to say, that it pays people such paltry amounts of money that people live in an ongoing state of crisis. And it's plain, isn't it? You need a less miserly, more human welfare state. I mean, in Europe, they manage this. In Germany, If you lose your job, you get 60% of your previous average wage, up to a maximum of €7,050 per month in the west of Germany. And meanwhile, we pay people like a tenner a day to live on. There are issues here, David, and this is a a relevant question to ask to you, because you spent six months as the Secretary of State for Work and Pensions. Did people in the Department of Work and Pensions talk about mounting poverty? I mean, a term like holiday hunger was in circulation, and I checked this. 2017, 2018. You know, if you
3: look at the record of, of successive governments, uh, we've got a very high level of employment in the UK. And I think that's a good thing. Uh, I, think, I well, think. You know what I'm is- going to say
2: to that? I mean, for example, 70% of children in poverty are from working families.
3: If you, I mean, partly because we have so many people in, in, in employment, you aren't going to, you know, no wonder the numbers have shifted in that, in that direction. You know, we are getting people into work which is good. I think there is a a challenge which is a lot of those people are in part-time work and I think if you can extend the number of hours that they work, then then that is one solution to that.
2: But at the very least, benefits need to be substantially increased so that if people lose their jobs, they're not therefore plunged into crisis and poverty.
1: There are absolutely structural issues. And for me, what's happening in the labour market and what's happening in our social security system sit hand in hand. And you can't get away from the fact that actually wages have stagnated, you know, and therefore living standards pretty much haven't budged for 10 years. At the very basics, there is a flaw that says... The living wage is actually a real living wage and reflects the true cost of living. And then that starts pushing up wages across the income scale. I think I do believe that there is scope for greater work of voice and collective bargaining in order to ensure that the benefits, you know, from growth are better negotiated.
2: Do you, Dave, do you David, as a, as a conservative? Because, again, that seems to me something that, that runs across conservatives of all kinds. Is they're a bit allergic to the idea of trade unions having a greater presence in people's working lives and, and people having more bargaining? Yeah,
3: I, I, I'm not sure that that... Actually, is the right answer. <laughs> I, I'm afraid I, I don't believe that's but why the answer why not? because I think the experience of, uh, for example, the 1970s when we had a very strong oh, come trade on, union. Oh, 40 no, 50 left. years ago. Though. No, no. But it, well, that's the last time we had a really strong trade union. But we movement. have strange
1: young trade it, union leaders across Europe, right? Okay. And they're able to have a corporatist model where they can sit down as grown-ups with employers and negotiate settlements that are good for workers.
3: And Sweden and, workers. With, Sweden with, and with,
2: Germany are not Britain yeah. in the 1970s. No, right? but that. that OK, that wasn't our experience
3: in the <laughs> 1970s. And what you saw is that essentially resources moved from, you know, unions were able to get very good deals for their members and non-unionized, including low paid people, tended to suffer as a consequence until, until the unionized uh, areas became uncompetitive. And, and, you know, that's why one of the reasons why they are no longer the force that they, that they are.
1: David, you're in government. I know you're trying to do good things at the time, but the cut that we saw to Social Security over that 10 year period, I think is unforgivable. And actually, if the Social Security system and the level of benefits that people are getting was anywhere close to the 2010 level, we would be in a situation where, you know, a couple with uh, two kids would have £4,000 more in their pocket.
3: I think we also have to go back to the position that we were in in 2010, and I. I you know, oh no, this, I don't. I don't want to go. Well, this is, I, I, was well, I? Uh, yeah, no, I'm not going to go through the whole argument, John. But let me just. We've you know, both had it. Make that
2: point. Thousands of occasions, not me and you, but I mean, down the years.
3: But you know. There, there were some tough choices that any government was going to have to make in any government was going to have to make in those but on circumstances. the
2: backs of the on the backs of well, the most vulnerable and, and disadvantaged people in a, a, society.
3: The biggest single you know, area of expenditure you mentioned DWP, you know, that's the biggest spender in, in 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 government, and inevitably there was going to have to be something from that area. Now, you know, did we get everything right? I'm not going to pretend that we did. Did we go too far, I think, in terms of the freeze? Yes. And are we doing enough now? I'm no longer obviously part of the government, but are we we doing enough now?
2: I don't think that we are. See, the thing is, I would like to think the sort of naive, optimistic side of me would like to think we could at least have a conversation involving people from the left or the centre-left and the right or the centre-right of politics about the fact that clearly we can't go on like this. If there are people like Robin in Northampton and people like Lexi in North Wales and millions and millions of other people living in impossible circumstances, clearly something very fundamental has to change, partly about the world of work and partly about the welfare state and the benefit system. Now, the last time there was a big or one of the last times there was a big sort of sea change in that stuff was in 1945 and if you look back to what presaged that it wasn't just the Labour Party there were Conservatives involved in that sea change because there was a sense of we can't go on like this we'd seen the hunger and the poverty and the destitution of the 1930s and right the way up to the King at the time everybody agreed that something had to be done now are we at least on the same page there the three of us? Well, I think a we, loaded question. Uh, some would ask,: Yes. Are, are we in a, <laughs> look, I, 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 I th- But you agree,'t can't, You can't live in a, in a country as affluent as ours, in which people are starving and freezing.
3: I think the government will regret not taking action now because I think it's going to be such a tough few months that the political pressure for them to do more is going to build up.
1: And and where I think the debate needs to get to is to move, you know, so everyone will probably agree that we need short-term interventions. But for me, I think it is structural. You know, we've been arguing for what we call a living income, which is the kind of premise that there should be an income level, which we say as a society, no one's allowed to fall below so that people can afford the basics. And then from there, they can build and they can get ahead. And actually, that is a really radical, controversial thing to say. And I'm like, what kind of a society are we? Six richest. where to say there should be a basic income level that we say no one should fall below, is something that feels revolutionary. I don't think it does. And if you look around and you look at the state of the, the, the crisis that people are in, why on earth would that not be a thing that we should be trying to work on both sides of the political spectrum?
3: Where, where I think we 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 differ, um, well, there's quite a few areas where we differ, but but one area where I think I definitely differ is, is is that I don't think you can guarantee uh, income without conditionality
2: and can you just uh, be more specific yeah, when you so, say conditionality so, like what
3: so which as a system works at the moment so you know if you are receiving benefits then yes it's right that you are required to meet with your work coach but you try and make that experience as much like work because i do think you have to have a welfare system that is designed about you know providing support when people can't earn but getting them back into the labour market as quickly as possible.
1: So I think that plays into this sort of scroungers uh, narrative. And actually, there's no evidence that conditionality actually works. And every time the TWP is asked to stomp up evidence about it, they shirk away from it. And in truth, most people want to work. Most people want to work. But if you actually equip them to engage in the labour market better, and that is both about the income that they get, that means that they can turn crappy jobs that don't pay them enough and pay poverty wages, and then you equip them with the skills in order to engage with the labour market, that will achieve the same outcome without being punitive.
2: Uh, this conversation could run and run, but I, I, I need to bring things to a close. I just wonder how you feel just in, in conclusion about the immediate political future. In the midst of the cost-of-living crisis and a looming energy shock and so on, there is an idea that we are definitely now in a new political era.
3: It is always uncomfortable for a government for there to be less money around the choices become harder people are grumpier and some of that is bound to reflect on the government so i think it's a difficult time and if you like the sort of economic cycle and the political cycle are misaligned for the government you know i am not re- i'm really not sure that we're going to be kind of in boom time in 2024 and everyone's Come going the to tax be happy
2: cut. it's a frightening time as well isn't it yeah it, it,
1: it does feel like we're going from profound crisis to profound crisis. Um, it feels like just a very uncertain, a really scary time. And a lot of things that we took for granted, I think, are being upended. And I think that will go back to, do we have a government for serious times? And, you know, do we have a prime minister for serious times? I would argue not. And I think the more we are in crisis mode, however much the prime minister tries to rebrand himself, I'm not sure that the public will be convinced that he's the guy to help us uh, weather the storm?
2: I mean, um, I'm a journalist, you know, you're not meant to sort of feel anxious and terrified and depressed and all that. But obviously, if you're looking into this stuff, if you're talking to people having these experiences, that's exactly what happens really. And the immediate future, leave aside politics, you know, the immediate future of people's everyday lives, I think is sort of terrifying. And there's a, there's a really, really sad quality to it as well. And I don't think politics has aligned itself with that. On either side, I think this is true of the Labour Party as well. It's not really reflecting the gravity of what we're faced with. But British politics moves pretty slowly, always, you know. We're not the but most... not always. Well, we're not the most light on our feet political system, you know. We had the Great Depression in 1929 and then we got the, the Labour government and the post-war consensus in 1945. So I suppose that sort of informs my sense of anxiety is that I actually feel optimistic in the back of my mind. I think over time things will change because it seems to me that, as I said earlier, we can't go on like this. It's just a question of when that realisation conclusively will dawn and I think that might be a fair way even after 2024. When we'll all be 1p, or those of us who pay tax will be 1p in the pound richer. Thanks for that, Rishi. Thanks very much indeed. And on that note of gratitude, a fashionable emotion these days, we're going to call things to a close. Thank you so much for joining us today, Miata and David. Thanks for Thank yes. you. Thank you. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And um, finally, don't forget to subscribe to Politics Weekly America with my guardian colleague, Jonathan Friedland. This week he's joined by two journalists in Florida for a very lively chat about Governor Ron DeSantis, the man who is trying to out-Trump Donald Trump. So you think we've got problems here? in the Republican Party. To get all the latest news from Washington and beyond, search for Politics Weekly America and hit subscribe. That's Politics Weekly America out every Friday. This episode was brilliantly produced by Natalie Katena. Sound was by Ivan Manley. The executive producers are Maz Ebtahaj and Nicole Jackson. We'll be back for more thrilling and lively discussion next Thursday. Thank you for joining us.
0: Hello, Guardian columnist Jonathan Friedland here. I now have my own U.S. politics podcast, which is, helpfully, called Politics Weekly America. So if you want to hear my interviews with politicians like Hillary Clinton or expert analysis from Guardian journalists and the latest news from Washington, D.C. and beyond, you should subscribe. To do that, just type Politics Weekly America into Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be there every Friday.